you have not yet answered the question. Give us a simple answer. Will you recant or will you not? You ask for a simple answer. Here it is. Unless you can convince me by scripture and not by popes or councils who have often contradicted each other, unless I am so convinced that I am wrong, I am bound to my beliefs by the texts of the Bible. My conscience is captive to the word of God. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Therefore, I cannot and I will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Hey everyone, welcome back to Christ is the Cure. We are continuing our Reformation specials. This is our third Reformation special, fourth if you count the combined editions of the Halloween special. Which, by the way, I hope you found that edifying in some shape or form. I've received good feedback from individuals on both ends of the application section. Those who uh, you know participate and those who don't. And so that's all I could ask for, that those... Differing positions could still find something of value in those episodes and hopefully inform where they decide to go, um, you know, moving forward, looking at um, the Halloween season. So today we're actually going to talk about the myths of the Reformation. We're going to highlight briefly some of the most prominent myths about the Reformation, not the only myths, um, but some of the most prominent ones. Uh, before we do that, I do want to say that in my previous episodes... I mentioned the Reformation Conference up in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and that is still going on in 2024 of May. Um, I mentioned that we would have a Crisis Cure discount code for listeners. Um, I thought that we would have it by the end of October, but it looks like that will come around in November. So keep an eye out. Like I said, I'll, I'll put it up on the website so that you get an email if you go subscribe at crisisthecure.org. Of course, if you follow me on social media, you'll likely find it, unless social media decides to continue locking me out of posting and comments and stuff like that because it's been a weird it's been a weird month so i apologize for that delay um keep your eye out for that discount code and let's get into today's episode we're going to talk about again myths about the reformation that are most notably spread around by catholics um as a polemic against protestants around this time of the year now the overall picture is that the Reformation was unnecessary. It was led by individuals who are in the fray um, that roamed neatly and simply cleaned it up without a problem, and they just moved on. Essentially, the Reformation was just a fly that tried to be schismatic with no historical basis for the Reformation or its doctrines and all that stuff. But what we really find is that the historical reality is far less clear-cut, um, and oftentimes the pop apologetic Catholics, especially you know, on Instagram and stuff like that, just pop off this rhetoric that really just isn't defensible whenever you look at the history of what's going on in the Reformation. Now, it's worth saying that the Reformers were not perfect, nor am I saying in this episode that the Reformation didn't have 
um, some ramifications that were negative. But it's dishonest to say that the Reformation um, wholesale was negative and that there was no backing for it. And then it's incredibly dishonest to paint the historical picture the way that it often is. Um, and it becomes a little bit ironic, too, whenever you start seeing how... Um, I mean, Catholics across the board kind of differ in how they approach Protestants nowadays because of the Vatican II loyalists um, and then the Trent loyalists who, who think that the Vatican II guys are are uh, modernist liberals and all that jazz. So um, ultimately, um, in attempts to defend the sanctity of the Roman Catholic institution, and yes, I'm including the Eastern Rite because they're still subject to the Roman pontiff, um, they'll, they'll forget the messiness of the history and purposely neglect it. Um, and that's kind of what people do in polemics. I mean, Protestants do it too. They oversimplify. And I've talked about that in the past, you know, arguments that Protestants really should stop using. But let's get into some of the myths that are propagated. So let's get into myth number one. Number one, the Reformation was caused by a lone, disgruntled monk. This is probably one of the most common and to be fair, a lot of Protestants kind of back it up because they only seem to know about Luther and the Reformation. But the, the most common myth is that the Reformation all started because of Luther, and it was this lone, disgruntled monk that caused all this dissent and so on and so forth. So the, the facts are that while Luther's thesis was posted up in 1517, and that marks kind of like the official day and the start of the Reformation, this isn't the full picture, especially because... His first 95 thesis was namely around reforming indulgences, not getting rid of indulgences. And this was not even about the papacy. It was not about justification. It was just about getting rid of the abuses of indulgences. But it did knock down the first domino, at least in Germany, when it comes to the row of dominoes that is the Reformation. But the Reformation didn't start or end with Luther. Um, Luther is just one piece of a larger puzzle. Um, but this myth also shapes the idea that Protestants kind of owe themselves to Luther entirely and must comply with his articulations and teaching as if he is a Protestant Pope. That's just not how we work. Um, and he's not a Protestant Pope and we do owe some to Luther, but many Protestants disagree with Luther's polemics and approach on many issues, both theological or otherwise, and have closer affinity with those other reformers because there were other reformers. One of them being the Swiss reformer Zwingli. But even before this, there were many reformers and many movements for reform on many of the same issues long before Zwingli and Luther. This, this did not come out of the blue. It was brewing for a long time. And Catholic and Protestant scholars alike recognized that the Reformation was a ticking time bomb. It was just waiting to happen. You, you could not avoid it. It was inevitable. It was You just couldn't get around it. And this goes with the reality that at the time of the Reformation, you have not only Zwingli and Luther, but you have others. These are all Catholics calling for reform. There were the movement of, of course, the the humanists, not to be confused with, you know, the modern sense of humanists. And if you want to go hear more about that, you can go to my Beyond Luther episode on the humanists. Um, but the humanists were, were very much calling for reform in the same way as those before Luther and Zwingli had been calling for reform. And then you have, of course, those other Catholics, who ended up being evangelical Catholic. They, they agreed with um, the reformers on these different principles, except on the papacy. So there was a lot of moving parts, but it wasn't just Luther, and it wasn't this lone monk. But whenever we set our limits to just Luther's timeline, 
The most notable parallel is Zwingli, who in 1516, remember Luther put up his 95 Theses in 1517, Zwingli in 1516 was actually pressing on more issues in Zurich than Luther had been in 1517. Because like it was mentioned, Luther was concerned with the abuses of indulgences. He wasn't necessarily concerned with these other issues quite yet. It snowballed. But over in Switzerland, Zwingli was moving swiftly and he was dealing with reform at the same time, if not before, and independently of Luther. Now, it's my opinion that Luther gets more attention because of all the steps Luther took. Namely, each step of the way, he had to actually face the institution's authorities while Zwingli... He didn't have to do that because of Rome's reliance on Switzerland's mercenaries. Uh, they didn't press Zwingli because they needed that military power at that time. And so Zwingli wasn't pressed in the same way that Luther was, but he was still calling for reforms on the same level. So it's likely that Luther gets more attention because of that David versus Goliath kind of story, while Zwingli is doing the same things theologically, but just not having to face up to the authority. But in 1522, Zwingli also broke with Rome in rejecting the infallibility of the papacy. Uh, there are extra-biblical traditions, and he replaced them with the Holy Spirit and Scriptures. In 1523, he put forward 67 theses for reforms of the church, while he also preached through the Scriptures using the grammatical historical method of interpretation. And in these theses, he notes that salvation is only through faith in Christ. Good works were not uh, meritorious for justification, and purgatory did not exist, and the Lord's Supper was not a reoccurring sacrifice in Christ, not the Pope, was the head of the church. Zwingli was also a little bit more tactful than Luther in how he approached things. In Zurich, he went before a council, and he got the city approval um, for his teachings to be spread around and allowed him to preach, while also instructing all clergy to preach from Scripture alone. And then in 1525, Zwingli moved to having the native tongue for worship as opposed to using Latin, and he gave laity uh, communion, which was also uncommon in the church prior to the Reformation. And so this brief highlight kind of shows that reform was occurring in Z Zurich, um, at large underneath Zwingli's influence, but he was more tactful. He didn't have the grandeur uh, fight with the authorities and all those things that make Luther stand out. But the reality is that Zwingli, Luther, and all the precursors to the Reformation and the reformers who supported the reforms and carried it along demonstrate that this was not just a lone monk. It is silly to suggest that a uh, lone disgruntled monk as the sole cause of the Reformation. Myth number two, the Reformation's goal was to break from Rome or start a new church. Now, with this myth, we're actually going to go into a little bit more detail with uh, next week. But in reality, the Reformation expected reform of the Western church. The Reformers did not see themselves as founding a new church or recovering a, a church that was lost um, since Paul's letters. But instead, they saw themselves as having continuity with the church universal throughout the ages and that it was Rome who had deviated, and they were trying to reform it and move it back to that Catholic vision. And as far as the Protestants were concerned, it was Rome who created the new church by refusing total reform and instead excommunicating and creating new churches by excommunicating and thus making itself a sect within the Catholic stream of thought, which, like I said, we'll go into next week. But the overall point here is that the Reformers were not intending on starting a new church or breaking from the Catholic Church. They view themselves as the true Catholics and Rome as the deviants. And you can see this in their writings. They speak very highly about the Catholic Church, Catholic meaning universal, not the Roman Catholic institution. Myth number three, the Reformation was a detachment from church history. 
Now, some myths suggest the notion of reform itself was detached from church history, which really links back to point one and and our next point, point four, in some sense. The fact that this myth is propagated is pretty odd, but it has this weird ideal vision of a pure and perfect church at the expense of recognizing the faults and historical bumps of the church throughout time. But since Paul rebuked Peter, reform has been part of church history. You just can't get around that. The letters to the churches to clean up their act and move back to the faith, the ecumenical councils to counter growing heresies within the church, various disciplines and canons issued out from the church, and so on and so forth. Reform has always been part of the church. But still, this myth is about reform in general, um, right? So other expressions of this myth are about the reformers themselves. That is, that they were a historical anomaly that did not care for the historic church and that they had no grounds for their reasoning and arguments in church history. But quite the contrary, the reformers drank heavily from the well of the early church, and it was due to a growing interest in the early church that many corruptions of the medieval period were questioned at all, again, before the Reformation as well. Not everything in the early church was endorsed by the reformers, but they did quote them extensively, yet not without neglecting the reality that they could err. And so the only one infallible source of faith and doctrine has the final say, and that is the scriptures. Um, This was not a neglect of authority. It was not a neglect of history. It was not a neglect of tradition. It was just saying that at the end of the day, everything has to first and foremost line up with scripture. And even on this point, the reformers appealed to church writers. But this myth is really linked closely with a misconception of sola scriptura. And Michael Patton actually discusses this myth and issue pretty concisely. He says, quote, We believe that the scriptures are our final and only infallible authority, but not that they are our only authority. For example, we believe that our pastors and church leaders have authority over our lives. Hebrews 13, 7 says that we are to obey our leaders. Wives are to submit to their husbands in Ephesians 5.2. People are to obey the government in 1 Peter 2.13. Children are to do what their parents say in Ephesians 6.1. Where there cannot be an excuse of, Dad, the Bible does not say I have to clean my room, and so I chose not to. Or, Officer says nothing specific about running red lights in the Bible. As well, tradition, that is church history, is an authority in our lives. Those who have gone before us in the faith must be respected. Their collective and unified influence creates an authority which I believe is second only to Scripture. After all, they had the same Holy Spirit as us, didn't they? The Holy Spirit does not teach us everything new as individuals, but educates and inspires us in and with those who have gone before us. That is why I love dead theologians. As I read through John Calvin's Institutes a couple years ago, I did so with a fine-tooth comb, underlying every time another source was referenced, especially a source from another church father. One cannot study the Protestant doctrine of Sola Scriptura and come away with the idea that the Reformers ever meant that the Scriptures were our only authority. Ultimate authority, yes, only no. These other authorities are not our final authority, and if the scriptures contradict what these authorities say, the scriptures trump. End quote. And that's from an article called Myths About Sola Scriptura from Michael Patton at credohouse.com. I would also recommend Matthew Barrett's book on God's Word Alone. It's a great one on Sola Scriptura. And of course, James White has one called Scripture Alone, too. Great to pick up. Uh, Myth number four, the Reformation had no basis and was unnecessary as an event and divided a unified church. Now, as I already stated, I alluded to this myth and it's been kind of hinted at already. But what we find is that, again, the historical reality is far less clear cut than the Catholics like to make it. This myth is simply untenable historically. And any student of church history could not perpetuate this myth 
had they read the literature. While it is debated how bad the church was at the time of the Reformation, how corrupt it actually was, whether or not the Reformers were correct in their assessment, what is agreed upon by Catholic and Protestant scholars alike, reform was necessary, inevitable, and knocking prior to 1517. Not only this, but the reforms made by the Counter-Reformation's Council of Trent demonstrates this point entirely. The fact that Trent had these discussions about the Reformation, had different positions and debates about the various topics, and actually implemented different reforms shows that this reform was necessary, regardless of whether or not you agree with the Protestant application of the entire event. Now, in 1414 through 1418, that is the 15th century, there was a council called the Council of Constance, and it's interesting for quite a few reasons. And it was a council that sought to put popes underneath the authority of councils after three men had claimed the papal seats. So there's three men claiming to be popes, and this council sought to deal with who was the rightful pope, how do we reform the papal office, um, and it ultimately actually would be the same council that would order John Huss to be burned at the stake for his attempts to reform. The Council of Constance had different views that came from it. Um, and in its most extreme forms, it was completely consicular. It put these councils above the Pope, and that struck fear into the papal hearts because of this placing of councils above them. Other views of it viewed it as this, this placing of councils above Pope only occurred when the papacy needed to be corrected. Regardless, this council sought to reform and save the papacy in Catholic minds, yet for the Pope, it opened the door to being deposed by various councils. So these different interpretations would persist over the years. You know, it's basically the question of who interprets the infallible interpreter. That's really the debates that are happening in modern Catholic circles. How do we uh, interpret these infallible documents of Vatican II, which I always find kind of ironic because if I was going to debate which infallible documents to interpret, I'd rather debate how to interpret scripture, not how to debate later councils that are allegedly infallible, not demonstrably infallible. Nonetheless, um, this council made famous the axiom reform in head and members. And this would be a battle cry by Catholics to reform the higher up and the Pope until 1517. It would be repeated from 1417 through 1517, especially after the failed ecumenical council of Florence. And when I say failed ecumenical council, I mean that the council tried to make uh, nice with the Eastern churches, but it didn't work because they tried to subject the Eastern churches to the Pope. And they ultimately, after Florence, said, no, we're not going to do that. And so it never took off as an ecumenical council, but it's still authoritative for Rome. But Florence gave way to that interpretation that councils are only over the Pope when the Pope needs to be deposed rather than generally being over the Pope. And so this led to enough success for the popes to place the Pope back on top. And from 1417 through 1517, you find some popes just needing dire reform, but nothing occurring. And so that battle cry would come out. And I mention all this because whenever you get to the reformers and you start hearing about how Catholics talk about the Protestant Reformation, all of these critiques about the papacy and the abuse of power and all these things are novelties to be rejected, schismatic, whenever Catholics have been having these discussions since 1417, since the Council of Constance. So I, it's always just bizarre to me that that's the approach that's being taken here. Uh, myth number five, the reformers, or Luther specifically, ripped out books from his canon. This is probably the most insufferable myths that is propagated by, by even higher-ups on the Catholic sphere. 
And that's that Luther ripped books out of the canon in defiance of the church and gave us our first Protestant Bible. I've heard a lot of, I don't even know where some of the stories came from, but I've heard numerous versions of this story. But the myth is ultimately to try to demonstrate that the Protestant Reformation was desperately just trying to defy what had been settled for centuries. They're just this intrusive plague and that no one should take it seriously. But the claim is dishonest or ignorant. The fact of the matter is that the Old Testament canon, even according to Catholic scholarship, was settled at the Council of Trent. That is, in response to the Reformation. The New Catholic Encyclopedia points out, according to Catholic doctrine, the proximate criterion of the biblical canon is the infallible decision of the church. This decision was not given until rather late in the history of the church at the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent definitively settled the matter of the Old Testament canon. That this had not been done previously is apparent from the uncertainty that persisted until the time of Trent. And that's in its entry on the canon. And that is so important because while Catholics will appeal to a local council in Rome and Carthage and then the failed ecumenical council of Florence, these ultimately did not settle the issue according to Catholic scholarship. This also means that Luther's descent from the additional books of the canon was not unfounded, and this decision had not been made by an infallible declaration. Catholic scholarship agrees on this point, despite the fact that Catholic apologists will appeal to those local councils that took the side of Augustine in an ancient debate, but was never settled. The argument that Luther ripped books out of a settled biblical canon when Catholic scholarship admits that the canon was not settled infallibly until Trent is telling enough. But the reality is that Luther's rejection of the Apocrypha as scripture, as God breathed for doctrine, was just following a long and ancient tradition that rejected those books as well. He still viewed them as ecclesiastically helpful for edification, good for reading, good for education, just as people like Athanasius did, but he did not accept them as canonical in the sense of they are infallible scriptures, just like Athanasius. When someone surveys all of the canonical lists from the 1st to 5th centuries, what they find is that on these debated books, most of these canonical lists most closely align with the Protestant Hebrew canon. Give or take a book or two that may have been attributed to Jeremiah and thus harder to discern whether or not it was part of the canon. The Hebrew canon is, in fact, the common denominator across the traditions. Protestants have nothing to prove in regards to their canon because it is the common denominator and the standard. It is the burden of proof on the other side to demonstrate that we need to include extra books that were disputed until the Council of Trent. The list of those who closely align with the Hebrew canon held by Protestants is significant to say the least, from the first century with Josephus all the way through the 16th century with Catholics who were exemplary scholars such as Erasmus, Cajetan, and Jimenez, and even the common study Bible called the Glossa Ordinaria. There were also Catholics at Trent who rejected the books as canonical. But here's the kicker. But let me give you some context before we get to the kicker, actually. So within the early church, there were different tiers of literature to be accepted by Christians. The most famous distinction is attributed to Jerome, who distinguished between canonical books and books good for edification. And these are often referred to as ecclesiastical books. Athanasius would have three tiers. In the first tier, canonized scripture. And the second, those books to be read for edification. And third, the Apocrypha, and that's in his festal letter 
39. Here in Athanasius, he places what we would call the Apocrypha, or the Deuterocanonical books, into the second category. Basically, ecclesiastical books, good for edification. Christians generally did not reject what we would call the Apocrypha wholesale. Instead, they considered them the same way that Athanasius and Jerome did. Basically, they are good for edification to be read. They're not to be rejected wholesale. They can be useful. They're not Gnostic garbage, essentially, that can be just thrown out entirely and shouldn't be read at all. But they're also not scripture. They're to be read for edification. Now, typically, the distinction boiled down to category one for doctrine and category two for edification. This distinction would be retained functionally by Protestants for years after the Reformation, which is why the early English Bibles, including Luther's own Bible, included a separate section with the Apocrypha included in it. Now, early Protestant confessions actually maintained this distinction, and then only later would it shift. But you can read this in the 1561 edition of the Belgian Confession, Article 6, where it makes this distinction of books that are canonical, basically the Protestant canon, and then the books that are read for edification, that is, these extra books. Now, some would say that the books should be included in the canon without distinction. That is, they're all scripture, they're all God-breathed. And then some would say that they should be included in the canon, but with that distinction of category one and two. So they're all canonical, but one set is God-breathed while the other are just good for edification. Protestants came along and said, no, we should limit the canon to only that which is God-breathed. Therefore, we cannot say that they are canonical, but they're still good for edification. These were debates that go back to the ancient church, especially between Jerome and Augustine. And these debates would come back up during the 16th century during the Reformation. So when we get to the Council of Trent, that is the reaction to the Reformation, they met to respond to the Reformation, dealing with charges and implementing what they viewed as valid need for reforms. But in session four, they would deal with the scripture and tradition, which included a section on the canon, okay? So this council, the Council of Trent on the canon, agreed entirely to accept the wider canon of Florence. That is the Hebrew Bible plus these extra books, First Maccabees, Second Maccabees, um, Sirach, etc. But the council was divided on the actual status of these books. Okay, so they argued we should accept this as canon, but we don't know whether or not these apocryphal books are on the same level of authority as the Hebrew canon is. And they were divided on this because it was a long-standing debate, and even in their own day, Protestants and Catholics were echoing the positions of Jerome that only the Hebrew Bible was canonical in the sense of God-breathed scriptures. So the question was, are these books fully authoritative like the Hebrew canon, or were they canonical with certain restrictions? That is, they're not for doctrine, but just for edification. At the council, both positions were present. Catholic scholar Hubert Jeddon, in his work A History of the Council of Trent, in volume 2, page 57, says, quote, The tracts of the two general of orders show that the opinions diverged widely, even within the council, end quote. So the council decided to not contradict Florence by accepting a wider canon, but it chose not to debate or decide upon the position of either Augustine or Jerome. It did not commit to the status of authority regarding the apocryphal books. The council committed to, quote, the wider canon, but in as much as it abstained from theological discussion, the question of differences between books within the canon was left as it had been. Masarelli, however, expressly affirmed that the corresponding expression with equal authority 
was not at that time given the force of a formal decree. And that's Jeddah again. And what that means was that equal authority was not the status of the Apocrypha at this time. They did not decide upon it. Looking at another Catholic historian on this point, um, O'Malley and his work on Trent says, At the General Congregation on February 12th, discussions opened on the canon. A clear consensus emerged to reaffirm the wide canon, that is, including the Apocrypha, which had been ratified at the Council of Florence a century earlier. The Council at Trent felt, in fact, that it was not free to contravene such an important enactment at a previous council. But questions arose as soon as it became clear that the Reformers were not the only ones to question the status of the Apocrypha, and indeed that the controversy over them went back to the patristic era with Jerome rejecting them as part of the canon and Augustine defending them. Under these circumstances, should the council, if it accepted the Apocrypha as canonical, undertake a defense of its position, or should it at least take note of the problem and make some comment about a special status of the Apocrypha within the canon? There was a crucial intervention. The council should not try to resolve questions long disputed among reputable theologians, certainly not among the fathers of the church, such as Jerome and Augustine. Such questions should remain open. That is the course the council should follow in this instance, and that is the understanding we have of the canon approved by Florence. End quote. Just to basically point out that he's saying this was also the position of Florence, that it did not ultimately decide on the authority of the Apocrypha, but that it just had affirmed a wider canon. But let's continue. Quote, the council agreed simply to affirm the canon from Florence, but with the understanding that it was not taking a stand on the disputed question. Up until session four on April 4th, the matter occasionally came up again for discussion, but essentially the council did not move beyond where it was on that day. That absolutely crucial qualification of the decree may have been clear to the prelates of the council, but the text that they produced gave no hint of it. In the context of the controversies of the 16th century, in fact, the decree reads like an unqualified affirmation of a wider canon. No wonder then that Catholics appropriated and clung to the canon as a mark of their identity to be defended in its integrity against all comers. This decision constituted the first instance of subsequent misunderstandings of what the council intended that became standard interpretations impossible to dislodge even from the minds of scholars who should know better. In this case, at least, the council itself must be held responsible for the misunderstanding. Here is how the Protestant scholars Gurry and Mead in their book Scribe and Scriptures, which I highly recommend, um, detail this event. Quote, some leaders at the council questioned the status of the Apocrypha, not only because of the reformers and the humanists, such as Cardinal Cajetan, but also because important church fathers, such as Jerome and Augustine, did not agree on its status. Thus, the leaders at Trent decided that they would not finally resolve the question of the Apocrypha's relationship to the canon, leave any defense for the canonical status of the Apocrypha, or make mention of the special status of the Apocrypha within the canon. Although the council believed it had not ruled in favor of either Augustine or Jerome's view of the canon, the decree reads like an unqualified reception of the wide canon, which has become a marker of Roman Catholic identity to be defended even by scholars who should be better informed. According to Roman Catholic historians, the documents of the proceedings reveal that the council believed that it was not deciding between long-held canonical views, while the unqualified wording of the decree committed later Catholics to defend Trent's canonical view as part of Catholic identity, including the anathema on the one who does not accept it. In short, Trent never intended to settle the question of the authority of the Apocrypha in relation to the Hebrew canon. It did not 
intend to decide. And it did not intend to decide on the basis of it being a historical debate, not just something Luther did. Now, post-Trent, Protestants such as John Calvin took note of this lack of distinction in his work, The Acts of the Council of Trent with the Antidote, and saying, quote, In forming a catalog of scripture, they mark all the books with the same chalk and insist on placing the Apocrypha in the same rank with the others, end quote. He also says, quote, Of their admitting all the books into the canon, I say nothing more than is done against the consent of the primitive church, end quote. Now, it was in 1566 that a Catholic named Sixtus coined the term deuterocanonical and defined it as being second only in time, not in authority. From here, the Apocrypha began to be settled as canonical in the position of Augustine rather than Jerome. Basically, it was post-Trent where Augustine's position ultimately prevailed. So here's basically the takeaway. First, Trent did not intend to do what many modern Catholics say, according to the New Catholic Encyclopedia. If we take Trent and interpret it according to its own attendees, the issue was not settled at Trent, nor, according to O'Malley, was it settled at Florence. Second, the myth regarding Luther ripping books out are clearly dispelled and with great force by Catholics themselves, both modern and those at Trent. Catholic scholarship dispels this myth. And of course, third, the Council of Trent, despite not wanting to settle the matter, still did so prematurely because they erred in not making the proper qualifications regarding the wider canon. So that concludes our myths of the Reformation. It was only five of them. They were briefly addressed with most of them being on this last one. But I hope you found it interesting. I hope you find it useful. If you want to hear more about the history, go to ChristSecure.org and look for the Beyond Luther series. You can just type it in the search bar or you can look for it in the categories. Beyond Luther will have a bunch of different episodes about the history around the Reformation. If you want to hear more on the Apocrypha, you can go search for Apocrypha in the search bar and it'll pop up Apocrypha Part 1 and I believe 2. I think there's only two parts. The first part deals with the canonicalists. The second part deals with the contents and the influence of the Apocrypha from the, you know, from the New Testament through the early church. So God bless you all. Until next week, have a wonderful, wonderful weekend.